podcast one production. Money makes the world go round. And money's been with us for a long, long time. The barter works really well in a village. But when you have a city of thousands, you're going to need something a lot more flexible. And when you have traders who are moving from city to city, they need portable wealth. So they need coins. Now, when you have too many coins to carry around with you, and that's what happened to the Chinese about a thousand years ago, you invent banknotes. And then once you have banknotes, you can invent bank checks and then credit cards and then touchless payments. Money has always evolved and it will disappear from view completely over the next billion seconds. Today, I'm Mark Pesci. The coming next billion seconds are the most important in human history as technology transforms the way we live and work. On this series, we talk to some of the brightest minds shaping our world, charting our path as we voyage into an incredible future. In this episode, we talk to cryptocurrency expert Mark Jeffrey about what's happening to money and how that transformation will touch all of us. Cash and computers colliding as cryptocurrencies on this episode of The Next Billion Seconds. Let me set the scene. It's May of 1994. I'm one of about 300 folks who made their way to the very first conference on the World Wide Web. This was organized by the inventor of the web, Tim Berners-Lee. And it was an amazing event. There was an electric charge in the air as the event opened. People knew that the web was about to change everything. The conference opened with Tim saying a few words at the podium, and then he turned it over to another fellow that no one had ever heard of, Dr. David Chome. Now, Dr. Chome had been working in the field of cryptography. That's the branch of mathematics that deals with coding messages so they can't be read except by the intended recipient. But it turns out that cryptography is good for more than just messages. It's also really good for money. Because if you want to send money to someone, it has to be sent in a form that allows only the recipient to be able to spend it. Otherwise, it's like sending money through the post. If it gets intercepted, it can be spent without a trace. That would be bad. Dr. Chomes showed something very different. He had a wallet, which was really just a computer program, and he moved 25 cents out of that wallet and sent it to a recipient, and all of that happened within a web page. Now, that was literally mind-blowing for everyone in the audience, because most of the folks there were academic researchers. We'd never really even thought about the fact that you could use the web for commerce. And this was many months before Amazon was founded, or eBay, or Alibaba, before there was web commerce. But already, at the very beginning, the importance of money, specifically designed to be secure on the web, was absolutely clear. And Tim Berners-Lee, the inventor of the web, he got it. That's why he put Dr. Chome first. But here's the thing. DigiCash didn't really go anywhere. Maybe it was too early. Maybe it was too weird. It's hard to know. Now, there's a great line. It's steam engines when it comes steam engine time. You can't force an innovation into being. But when the time for that innovation has come, you cannot stop it. So instead of DigiCash, what did we get? We got PayPal. And we got lots of credit cards used online. And, of course, that's turned out to be a bit of a nightmare because those card numbers get stolen and misused so often precisely because we have to use them online. So merchants and banks, they now have to handle all of that data very carefully, and that's not getting any easier. 
there has to be a better way of working with money in the digital world. There has to be because all of this is insecure and it's been causing more problems for us every year that passes. So to help us understand this moment and why that modest demo actually touched off a revolution in how money works, we're very lucky to be joined via Trans-Pacific Link to Podcast One's Los Angeles studios by Mark Jeffrey. And if there's anyone who could be described as a bit of a renaissance man, it might be Mark. 20 years ago, he was working at Time Warner developing the palace. That's probably the first modern chat app. And since then, Mark's been a serial entrepreneur, somehow also found time to have a very successful career as the best-selling author of the Max Quick trilogy of young adult novels. Now, back in 2014, Mark wrote one of the very first books to explain this new weird world of digital money. His Bitcoin Explained Simply became an instant hit on Amazon. Mark understands better than most what's been happening to money and why. Mark Jeffrey, welcome to the next Billion Seconds. Hey, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so let's talk about what happened. We had all of these systems. We had PayPal. We have credit cards online. But something happened just about 10 years ago, back in 2008, that really caused things to change. Could you talk about that? Yeah, so I think what you're really asking is what you know what made Bitcoin special and why did it take off when all these other earlier uh, attempts failed? You remember that one. I remember flus. I don't know if you, do you recall that? It had a, uh, Whoopi Goldberg was the spokesperson for it. They had commercials on television um, and, and it just, it never took off. And I th- my, my own personal theory as to why those things didn't work um, is because all of them were centralized. So basically there was a big computer in the sky that kept track of everyone's balance. And, you know, if I sent you a dollar, it would subtract it from my record and add it to your record. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone knows that centralized computers eventually get hacked. They, they always do. I mean, Equifax recently proves that. It's just the, the re- most recent in a long line of centralized computers getting hacked. So we all know that distributed is the way to go. And so what you really want is something that is like the Napster of money. So anyone who has a copy of the software can interact with anyone else with a copy of the software. Okay, so Napster, no... for those yeah. who might not have known, Napster was sort of the first peer-to-peer file sharing app so that if you had a song on your computer and I had a song on my computer, then we could both listen to each other's music libraries, which was really good for both of us but drove the recording industry nuts. Right. <laughs> yes. So, so yeah, so, but, but peer-to-peer is the way to go. But nobody could get it to work. And the reason why is because there was something called the double spend problem. And that was, bec- uh, that was where, because it was peer-to-peer, when I sent you a dollar, if I sent someone else a dollar real fast, the entire network, the latency in it, uh, there was just not enough time for it to catch up and to validate which of those transactions happened first and indeed whether both of them were valid. And nobody could figure this out. So right? it, it would almost be like if I was very close to my credit card limit and spent it at a whole bunch of places simultaneously and I would blow past my limit because the bank wouldn't be able to check to see that I was so close to my limit that I couldn't spend. Yes, that is exactly correct. Right. So nobody could figure this out until a guy named Satoshi Nakamoto came along. And he invented something called the blockchain, which I'm not going to get into a long discussion on. But essentially, the blockchain is the flux capacitor that made Bitcoin possible. <laughs> that was the magic. That, that is, solved the double spend problem, made it go away. 
So you're hearing a lot about the word blockchain, particularly if you have any exposure to digital currencies. And it's almost a magic pixie dust. People don't explain how it works. And I'm going to give you a really simple example from my own life of how a blockchain could work. So I travel a lot because I run around giving a lot of talks. And of course, I collect a lot of travel receipts. And I have to submit those travel receipts to the folks who I do the traveling for so they can pay me back for it. And of course, normally, if you're working for a company, you fill in an expense report. Let's take this in and put this into a blockchain. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to collect all of my taxi receipts. I'm going to collect my airplane receipts for all of my travel, my hotel bill. And I'm going to put them together. And I'm going to take a photograph of them so that you can actually see them. And when I take a photograph of them, I'm also going to produce what we call technically as a hash. But it's just a unique number that describes this photograph of all of my receipts. And I'm going to put that number onto that photograph. All right. So now I have that photograph and I have that number. That's fine. Put that all aside. I go on another trip. I collect some more taxi receipts. I collect some more airplane receipts. I collect some more hotel receipts and I come home and I get them and I put them all together. And before I snap the photo, I take the number from the last photo and I put it on this photo. And it's then I snap the photo And when I do that, what I've done is because I've snapped the number from the previous photo, it means I can't change anything in the previous photo because the numbers will no longer agree. And so because the number from the previous block, the previous photo is in the next block, those blocks are chained together. So that's how you get a blockchain. When I have a third group of receipts, I take the number that I generated for the second photo and I put that in the third one. And so it becomes this lovely chain where each chain contains within it the seed of truth for the block before it so that I know that each block is consistent. And this means that my clients can look at this block and know that these numbers are correct and I'm not lying about my travel receipts. It knows that I can point at that and say, look, at these are my valid receipts. You can tell I haven't tampered with them. Now give me my money. So when you take this to a currency, what you're doing is as you're moving Bitcoin around or Ethereum around, everyone has a big ledger. It's just like these travel receipts. And so I can move money from my column to Mark's column in this ledger and everyone is agreed that that money has moved because everyone can see that it's moved and everyone can agree that because these hashes agree, because these snapshots agree that the money has moved. That's very nice. I'm going to steal this and pretend I thought of it. I guess then what it did to tie that back in is it meant that when you have a dollar and I have a dollar, when you give me that dollar, it means that only I have that dollar. You can't give that dollar to anyone else. So no two people can spend the same dollar. That is correct. So that's the magic. All right. So if that's the magic, what was it that made that magic stick this time? And I mean, you know, this happens back in 2008. You didn't write your book for six years and yours is one of the first books that's out there. So what happened in that first six years? Did it just take time for this to sort of click or what happened? It took a long time for people to understand that this, you know, that this was very real. Uh, It's a very, you know, the study of cryptography and blockchains is, it's pretty nerdy. It's pretty geeky, right? So most people don't understand it. So it took a long time for enough people with, uh, you know, sort of online weight and reputation to get behind it and say, hey, you know what? This is different. This is very special. 
So it's and a bit, I, just, I mean, it, there's a bit it like a consensus tink- building. Right. It was a Tinkerbell effect. Everyone sort of had to believe that Tinkerbell was real, that Bitcoin yes. is real. And then because of that, it really starts to get its own momentum. Yeah. And, and, and at a certain point, there were so many voices pointing at this thing going, look at this, look at this, look at this. And some of them were very important. And I remember I had, I had just understood what was going on sometime around 2013. Like the little, you know, the little bell went off in my head and I went, oh, my God. I, I understand what I'm looking at, but I can't be right because if I am, the implications of this are that this is more important than the Internet itself, possibly. And I, I was thinking weird. I was thinking crazy thoughts like that. And I was thinking I was insane. And then about a week later, Mark Andreessen, who invented the web browser, came out in the New York Times and said almost exactly the same thing I was thinking. And at that point, I'm like, oh, OK, I'm not insane. Somebody else thinks this. And then there were other voices that sort of joined in after that. But. That was the moment for me where I was like, okay, I believe this now. Okay, so once you believe this, I mean, that's sort of half the equation is that you're going to have this, this, this money that you're going to have peer-to-peer that people are going to share. What does it take to get a merchant to believe in your new money that you've just created that you have peer-to-peer? Because I think that's the other half of the coin is like you can invent any money you want. You can invent wooden nickels, but that doesn't mean you're going to be able to spend them anywhere. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I still think. I mean, there are people who take Bitcoin and accept it as merchants, but you know, you can't go to the gas station and pay for your gas in Bitcoin. You know, for the most part, most people will not accept that. Um, and I don't. And I think Bitcoin now has become more like gold than an actual active currency that you spend like you would dollars. So the interesting thing is like a commodity, it has volatility that we wouldn't normally associate with a currency. Currencies are supposed to be a number of things, but volatile is not on that list. Because if you're a volatile currency, it means that your central bank is supposed to be running your money system for you isn't doing a good job. Yeah, that's correct. Um, and, and yeah, it is, it is very much more like a commodity. And the other thing that makes it more like a commodity is the speed of transactions uh, is actually pretty slow with Bitcoin in particular. Um, it takes 10 minutes for a transaction to be confirmed in the network. So imagine going to, uh, you know, swipe your card at the, uh, at the gas station and, and 10 minutes later, <laughs> uh, then your transaction is done. That's just too slow, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not very good in so, uh, for cash transactions in the same way. So one of the things that has been noted about Bitcoin is that the transactions, I guess we're calling them, they're not anonymous, but you don't have to identify yourself. There's, I guess the people say they're pseudonymous. You can say, hi, I'm the Wizard of Oz and I want to trade with you in some Bitcoin. And you can say, hi, I'm Dorothy and we'll trade Bitcoin. And, and that's enough for us to be able to trade Bitcoin. And that's meant that people can use it for things that maybe would run afoul of regular money. Is that not correct? Yeah, that is indeed correct. Um, and pseudonymous is the correct way to, to uh, describe it. Um, basically, there's sort of, you know, there's a number associated with you, and you can um, use different numbers for different transactions if you want to. Um, but through a little bit of sleuthing, uh, and, and particularly if you exit the system by converting your Bitcoin into actual dollars using an exchange, um, you can generally kind of find out who someone is. That said, we do know which Bitcoin are held by Satoshi Nakamoto. We know because it's in the very first block of Bitcoin, which could only mean that it belongs to Satoshi Nakamoto. Um, and we don't know his identity. 
and so it is possible to remain hidden. We don't know. His, we don't know if he's. We don't know if Satoshi Nakamoto is his real name. We don't know if it's, it could be a government. It could be a, a, a bunch of folks. Um, it could be a corporation. We just don't know. But if he ever spent any of those bitcoins in that first block, and, and right now with 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 the value of Bitcoin, he's I think at least on paper a billionaire. If he ever Easily. tried tried to spend that, it would be immediately identified, wouldn't it? Yes, we'd know who he was. Pretty, it'd be pretty easy to figure out at that point. So it's interesting because you do hear about this being used on the dark web and for all these nefarious things, but it turns out that perhaps it's not quite as anonymous as people like to think it is. That's right. It's, it's not anonymous. I mean, I think I, a lot of people were saying it was anonymous, and, I, and honestly, including myself. When I first understood it, I, I believed it to be anonymous briefly, and then I realized I was wrong. Um, like a lot of other folks. So that that was quickly debunked. Okay, so we have this idea that Bitcoin is now becoming uh, a commodity. It's a store of value similar to gold or another precious metal, and people are using it like that. Now we start to sort of roll on. It's 2014, 2015, and we get to this idea that, yeah, that's a wonderful thing. It's a great store of value. It's a great test that all of this technology works. But we now start to get the idea that people want these digital currencies, these cryptocurrencies, to be able to do more. And that leads us to something called Ethereum. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, so Ethereum's kind of the second-generation coin. And, uh, you know, basically a lot of folks were looking at Bitcoin saying, wow, this is really important, but uh, I could do better. I've got a better idea. I've got other things we could build on top of it. So uh, the guys behind Ethereum said, you know, it would be great if money were programmable, if you could build digital contracts into the money so the money was smart enough to know what it was supposed to do automatically. That means that when you, say, transfer money to me, it could have rules attached to it. So Mark can only spend this if he sent me this document or if he's transferred this parcel of land. You can actually do that with money? Yes, yes. That is the beauty of Ethereum. And, you know, we could create a contract between us, which is essentially a bet on the Super Bowl, right? Right. And uh, I put in $10 and you put in $10. So there's 20 total in the pot. And we create a digital contract uh, in Ethereum, which says that if my team wins, I get the $20. And if your team wins, you get it. Now, what's cool about this is the $20 goes and checks on ESPN.com. It knows to do that. And it sees who won. And it just goes where it's supposed to go. We can't cheat. There's no third party that adjudicates who won the bet. So you've turned the money into something that's aware, at least of the terms of the contract. So the money is actually thinking. Yes. Yes. So the money does what it's programmed to do. That no more, no less. Just like any program. Except now it's money. How sophisticated can these programs get? There is no limit. As sophisticated as you can write any piece of software. It's just more software. I start to think when you, when you say that, that, you know, simple programs are very easy to check. They tend to not have bugs, but the bigger a program gets, the buggier <laughs> it gets. <laughs> yeah, you didn't, you didn't ask uh, right well. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and it's actually more dangerous now because if you make a mistake in your digital contract, a lot of money could be lost. So, so we're really getting to the point now where we're going to actually have to debug our money just the same way that we're going to have to debug our computer programs. Is that what we're saying? Yes. And in fact, um, you know, it's becoming even more critical. And there's already been one very, 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 very big mistake. Oh, really? Which, what was oh, that? Yeah. So uh, are you aware of the Dow? You've heard the story of the Dow? No. Okay. So the Dow was a headless venture firm. 
It stands for Distributed Autonomous Organization. So you mean like a venture capital fund, but with no one running yes. it. Yes, that's right. That's right. There was no one in charge. You know, who was in charge was the computer code inside of Ethereum, <laughs> which defined the terms of the contractual arrangement between all of the investors. So, so all these people pooled their money and put it into this computer program that would invest it for them. Well, no, the computer would not invest it for them. It just simply defined that, you know, all this money is held in escrow. And then together, uh, all of the investors had a pro rata vote on who they would invest in. So if so, I own 10% of the fund, I would have 10% of the votes on who we would get to invest in as a fund. Yes, correct. So $150 million was invested in the Dow. Wow. By, by a bunch of investors. And it all seemed super cool. And, and everyone really was like, wow, this is pretty interesting. Until something very bad happened. Somebody, we, don't, we still don't know who, figured out that by the terms of the contract, um, money could be siphoned out of the Dow. And 70 million of that 150 million was siphoned out before it was stopped by hand. <laughs> wow. So right. half so, of the money basically vaporized. When- yes, now, this is where it gets super interesting. The thief, basically, we don't know who he is, but we knew, uh, you know, we, there was an online handle that we were certain was associated with him. His argument was that I did nothing wrong. I committed no crime because the contractual arrangement says that whatever the code says is the contractual arrangement between us. The code allowed me to take this money. Therefore, I have not committed a crime. Therefore, this is just my money and too bad. Right? Yeah. And he kind of had a point. Because that was, that was indeed what everyone agreed to. Right. Well, and, and because there was a bug in what everyone agreed to, he's like, well, I just, I just used the program. I just took advantage of the bug. It's like, it's like yeah, I, I don't pay taxes, but I haven't done anything wrong. I'm, you know, I just, I'm just clever about uh, you know, looking through for loopholes, and I found one. That's kind of was what his argument was. So what happened next was pretty interesting. We all knew that or all the, the Ethereum community basically you know, tried to figure out what they were going to do about this. They knew that they could fix it. They could restore the, the money to everyone who had lost it. But to do that would require something called a hard fork, which meant that they'd have to go in there and, and meddle with the source code and you know, fix it by hand. And it was very dirty and violated all this wonderful decentralized, nobody can screw around with this uh, new digital money kind of ethos that had arisen. It's, it's like tampering with the timeline, right? So if you, if you go in there and monkey with it, you've done something sort of wrong, right? And well, I mean, but again, to come back to your flux capacitor metaphor, here we are. Yeah. So Biff stole all the money. Right. Do we change the timeline so Biff doesn't get the money? And, and it was really, it was really a, quite a quandary. I wasn't really sure what I thought should happen. And so where it ended up was the community left, put it up to a vote to the Ethereum community. And they said, look, if 80% of you or more um, say you want us to change the timeline to fix things by hand, we will. And that's, in fact, what happened. But as I understand it, it's, it's not quite what happened because they did go back and fix the timeline. But then there was another 20% who said, nah, we want this that's- original timeline where Biff <laughs> stole the money. And now there are two universes, right? That is correct. That is, that is the end of the story. There was a vocal <laughs> minority, the minority report, if you will, who basically said, no, this is wrong. We should never tamper with these things. We're just going to, we should just live with them. And so the main timeline, if you will, became Ethereum where the, the theft was reversed. And in the alternate universe timeline uh, where the theft was allowed to have occurred, that became Ethereum Classic. And both timelines, or both coins, still exist. And Ethereum Classic, I believe, is something like it's worth like 20 bucks right now. 
And uh, Ethereum, the main Ethereum uh, fork or timeline, if you will, is worth like 250, something like that right now. Okay, when we come back with Mark Jeffrey, we will re-enter the dual universes here and explore what's happening with what they call initial coin offerings. We'll be right back. And we're back talking to cryptocurrency expert Mark Jeffrey. Where we left things, in one universe, Biff had stolen the money. In another universe, Biff had never stolen the money. We had fixed the timeline. So we're in these two universes now. But there's something else that happened at the beginning, as I understand it. When Ethereum was created, the creators of Ethereum basically said, okay, guys, if you want to buy Ethereum, here's what you have to do. You have to give us some of your Bitcoins. And so there was essentially a sale where you took one cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, and used it to fund the creation of a second cryptocurrency that was Ethereum. How did that work? Yeah. So uh, actually, before that, there was there was another. Um, the original ICO, as I understand it, um, was actually Mastercoin, and Brock Pierce, who's now the chairman of the Bitcoin Foundation, kind of engineered and invented that. Um, he then sort of. I don't believe the Mastercoin one was very successful because we don't really talk about it very much. Um, I'm not sure what happened there, but Ethereum was absolutely the first successful. And most well-known ICO. Okay, so ICO, and, initial coin offering, which is where yes. you get people to buy your new currency by having them give you another cryptocurrency. Yeah, so the Ethereum guys had a big vision. Uh, now, remember, Ethereum didn't exist yet. So the Ethereum ICO was, hey, people out there, give us a bunch of Bitcoin. We're going to fund our company with all the Bitcoin that you send us. Um, and then we're going to build this Ethereum thing. And here's a white paper describing... What we're going to build, but nothing, you know, not a lot of coin, but code had been written yet, right? Right. So that's what they did. I had interviewed Vitalik Buterin on a podcast right before he did this, and you could still get to him, and he was talking about what Ethereum would be. And this is this is one of the creators of Ethereum. Yes, one of the creators of Ethereum, and I participated in uh, in the. I wish I'd participated more, but I did participate in the original Ethereum ICO. And you, in the process was you sent some Bitcoin into a, to a wallet and he sent you an email back saying, hey, got your Bitcoin, you have this much Ethereum. And then you waited for about a year and a half or so. Uh, and then you got another email that said, hey, so we're done cooking Ethereum. The dinner, the meal has been cooked. It's now being served. And then they sent you your Ethereum and then you were done. So it's, and, we, we, yeah. we, we recently had Rob Tersik on, and of course, he calls this the promise to build a casino in the desert. You know, the, basically, yes. <laughs> Vitalik said that he was going to build a casino in the desert, give him some money to build the casino in the desert, and it was an act of faith that this guy was actually going to be able to make this casino in the middle of the desert. The way an ICO, or uh, initial coin offering, works is a company comes along and says, look, we're going to create a new digital currency for this particular digital marketplace. And um, it's going to allow us to exchange value for something, you know, content or information or service or something. Uh, so if you're going to use our platform for that service, we're going to compensate people with this um, digital currency that we're, we're minting. Right. And if you buy in now, you can buy them at a discount, assuming that the ecosystem grows and prospers, there'll be demand for the currency and it will go up in value. So buy in now, get in cheap, so the analogy that I found useful for the ICO, the initial coin offering, is the idea that someone's building a casino in the desert. The casino doesn't exist. There's no plan to build it yet. Um, but they say, look, buy these chips and someday I'll build a casino. And when the casino's <laughs> sure. a big success, you can come use the chips in that casino. And, and I promise not to run off to Mexico with your cash. Yeah, I, I mean, look, Tersik's not wrong. Um, 
But there's, a, there's another interpretation of these events as well. And that interpretation runs sort of like this. If you or I go into a, you know, a, a fantasy digital video game like World of Warcraft and we buy a magic sword, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I buy it for 10 bucks, say, and then I go on eBay and I sell it for 20 bucks. And then somebody else comes along and, and buys it and then resells it a year later for 50 bucks. They're basically speculating on the price of the sword. I mean, there's, there's no way around that. That's what they're doing. Sure. And that's been happening right? since, since those objects have been for sale. Yeah. But at, at no time does anyone look at that sword and say, that's a security. It's not a security. It's a magic sword. It's a, and, and, you know, and just beyond that, just you know, abstracting it, it's just a digital item that people are, are selling, buying and selling. And they're speculating on it, and there's no way around it. But at no time does anyone say, I own a piece of World of Warcraft Inc. That just never enters anyone's brain. When you look at these tokens, like all of them, they're the same thing as that magic sword. There's no difference. It's just they're, they're sort of less goofy because you call them a token or a digital coin. Uh, it's not magic sword. So it seems like it's, it should be different. But actually, when you, when you abstract it out, it's no, there is no difference between those two things. But again, it comes back to that Tinkerbell effect that you have to believe in it. And if you believe in it, then it has value. And Bitcoin has $5,300 worth of value. Ethereum has $250, worth of value because there's a lot of attention. There's a lot of focus on it. But what we're starting to see now is that after Ethereum, there was a sort of penny drop. And now we're starting to see all of these other tokens, coins coming to market. And, and it's it seems to be accelerating where there were... At the beginning of this year, there were just a handful of them, and now there seem to be many every day. So what's going on with this? Accelerating. It's exploded beyond what anyone would have ever guessed. In Q2, more money was raised through ICOs than all of venture capital combined. <laughs> and I think we're at, I think Brock Pierce told me yesterday there's 30 ICOs a day right now. And basically, people have figured out that it's, an, it's a much easier way to raise money for their company or project. And, um, you know, instead of very slowly approaching a bunch of angel investors or uh, venture investors on Sand Hill Road, they can go directly to anyone in the world. (laughs) And because people sending cryptocurrency around is, you know, instant, um, it's just much larger and much faster. The velocity and size is greater than anything we've ever seen before. But... At some level, the investors you're talking to are wise enough to tell you whether you're peddling a line or whether you actually have something that's going to be valuable. And so I wonder about people who are putting money into all of these ICOs. Are they simply going to lose all their money because they're being sold a line of goods? Is that going to be a problem here? Without a doubt, there will be a shakeout. Everyone agrees that we're in the Wild West and uh, there is a madness upon the world uh, with these things. That's true. But amidst all that madness, I have to say this, uh, the next generation of the largest companies and the most important companies, the Amazons, the Ubers, the next generation of that, without a doubt, is in the crypto world, in my mind. I, I have no doubt of that. It's not in the, coming out of the venture world right now. And, and this is, I think, probably more than passing interest to you because you've decided that you're funding your own startup with an initial coin offering. I have. I have indeed, as you, as you note. Um, well, so my company is called Guardian Circle. We have a token called Guardium that we are currently in presale with uh, right now. And you can learn more about that at tokensale.guardiancircle.com. 
will be offering it to the public on November 15th for the first time of this year. So in like 33 days or so. All right. But why would someone, I mean, again, it's someone's going to give you their cryptocurrency, their Bitcoin or their Ethereum, which is clearly worth money for tokens that, again, it's the magic casino that you're building in the desert. Why are people going to do that? What is the line of reasoning for them that works for any ICO. How do we know that you're a good investment or that someone else is a good investment to be able to actually put their money there? Well, you should read my white paper and then you should investigate my background and see what I've done in the past. And you should do that with any ICO. And you should see who else has invested and who's on the advisory board. Um, and those are very good indicators of whether this is something right. serious or you know not something you should pay any attention to. Like any investment. You hear about white papers a lot. White paper is just simply a document that someone writes that clearly explains the technology and the purpose of a technology. So the original Bitcoin white paper in 2008 explained how Bitcoin worked, how the blockchain, which is the technology that underlies it, worked. And it's customary now for people when they're launching new coins or new tokens to have a white paper that explains what the token is for and why it's going to be useful. You know, the whole white paper thing is kind of goofy, you know, when you really think about it. It's like it's the wrong thing. It should be like a pitch deck or, a, you know, something something like that, something simpler, right? Not as academic. And this is a good point where I get to disclose that I have been an advisor to you on this project since before you actually formed the company. And I want to be completely clear with my listeners. We are not trying to get you to sell anything, but it's because I've been deeply involved. I actually know that Mark is well-grounded in all of this, and you can make your own decision about whether you think it's a good investment or not. But I want to be clear about our relationship so that there's no confusion around that. But I guess the the question here, Mark, is that it, obviously, like any investment, the, you want to be able to check the pedigree of the people who are making the investment and the quality of the idea. Do we have any standards? I mean, because the thing is, if you were doing a stock offering, either, either you were selling privately to investors or you were going on to NASDAQ, there would be a whole set of regulations that you would have to fulfill around transparency and probity and actuarial standards, all of these things that you would have to be able to tick off before you were allowed to sell shares to the public. Do we have any of that with, with all all of this new Wild West ICO? No, because they're not shares. This is not equity in the company. So, so do we this can... is where this is where we get wrapped around the axle. A lot of people, you know, there's many widely varying views on this, depending on who you talk to. But one thing we can all agree on is that you nobody here expects or has ever gotten stock at, for buying a token. Uh, sorry, there is an exception to that. So I'm, I'm actually going to – I'll go into that in a second where they very specifically are saying that the token is indeed a security. Um, but in 99% of the cases, not a security, right? So right. nobody's gotten a stock what, – what I'm saying is nobody's gotten a, gotten a stock certificate or expects that level of detail. Okay, so to tie that this back – That may change. That may change. But for right now, that's the way it is. But, but to tie this back in – what you're doing is you're saying, I'm selling magic swords, buy your magic swords from me. And everyone comes in and they buy your magic swords for however much you're, you're willing to sell them on the speculative hope that when they want to go sell that magic sword in a year's time or two years time, people are going to pay them more than they paid you. There is an awful lot of speculation going on in the ICO universe. There's no question about that. That is true. Right. So, I mean, our, our pitch is, look, we're doing global decentralized 911. Part of the reason why you buy our magic swords is you believe in that mission. You think 4 billion people on Earth who have no 911 should have something. 
And that's because that's what we're building. So, there, you know, part of it is you, you believe in the project that probably on some level you have an emotional attachment to it. So you know, there's a lot of components to why people would actually buy this. Thing. Right. And that's going to be true. With, as, as much as investments like to think of themselves as dispassionate, there's almost always some emotion that goes into any investment while you're affiliated with a particular stock or a particular security. Yeah, without a doubt. All right. So, so Mark, you, you just sort of tossed off decentralized 911. What do you mean by that? Well, decentralized 911, as in the emergency number. So Guardian Circle, so we live in a world right now where there's 4 billion people who have no 911. For the rest of us, we've got it, but it sucks and it's getting worse. And John Oliver did a whole bit on this about a year ago called 911 Sucks. Just off the top of my head, when you call 911, they have no idea where you are. And that's just the beginning of the problem. So if you accept that as, as you know, the, the basis of, hey, we should solve this problem, if you were going to reinvent 911 today, you would just from scratch and you could do anything you wanted, what would you do? Well, you'd make something that was uh, mobile native, location aware, and it would operate such that no matter where you were in the world, whatever you were in trouble, all you had to do is press a button that would send your alert up to the cloud. The cloud would look down and see what people, be that civilian or professional, and equipment was already nearby. It would then activate, coordinate, and push all that help to you as fast as possible, thus creating a flash mob of help. So think 10 people in three minutes as opposed to two people an hour from now or never, kind of depending on where you live in the world. And that's that's what I mean by decentralized 911. All right. Now, about a month ago, you made a little quip on Twitter because you saw all of these ICOs and you, you, you quipped on Twitter you know, in the future, everyone's going to have their own ICO. <laughs> and I remember yeah, reading the Warhol line. Yeah. 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 I remember reading that and, and, and thinking that it was a funny line and then thinking about it some more and thinking actually that you'd hit the nail on the head. Do you reckon that it's going to get easier and easier and easier? Because you're doing a lot of work right now in the background to make this ICO happen. I, I, I assume that it's not just you're, you're not just snapping your fingers. It's a huge amount of work. It's way more than I thought it was, even knowing what I knew before going into it. Absolutely true. Okay, so so it's a huge amount of work to do an ICO right now, at least to do it right. But you can see there are already companies that are working on automating that process as much as possible to make it easier and easier. Will there come a point where I can offer the Mark Pesci token and people will be able to buy tokens in me? Will it get that easy where I can sort of press a button and do that? There's a lot of things that in my original books I got right. The one thing I got very, very wrong um, was I never predicted the plurality of coins universe, mm. the one in which we currently live in, for sure. There are, th- there are roughly a 1,000 or so coins listed on coin market cap, and those are just the ones we know about. There's, there's undoubtedly a lot more even than that. Um, so the question is, you know, how far can this go? Can there be millions of coins? Um, how do we keep track of the relative value of all these millions of coins? And you know, how, how does it even work? And I, I think that without a doubt, there will be a lot of shape-shifting between one coin to another. Uh, and different coins will have different powers and, and, uh, and you know, beyond just their value. <laughs> so you're going to have a magic sword over here and a magic shield over here and your magic boots yeah. over there. It could become extremely confusing. But I think at the same time, there's a lot of... Uh, tools that will arise that will make the porousness of going from one coin to another very abstract and very easy. And I, I think we're going to see a lot of that actually probably in 2018. I think that's when the, the, the need for it is going to 
start arising and, and almost become critical. So I, th- I think that's coming. So I wonder now, one of the coins that I've heard about is called the basic attention token. And it was started by some of the very bright folks who founded Mozilla many years ago. Very, very bright folks. And what they've done is they actually want to be able to make it possible for an advertiser to pay for your eyeballs in the web browser, right? So that the advertiser is yeah. actually giving you some of these coins if you're watching an ad while you're on the web. So rather than paying the publisher, I guess, they're paying you directly and then you can turn around and pay the publisher for the content you're reading. Yes. So instead of having someone else rent your eyeballs, you rent your own eyeballs, right? <laughs> so, I mean, that's a lot of the stuff in this crypto world is like that. We're decentralizing everything. And there just was no realistic way to do that before now, before this, before the crypto tokens arose. And so we're seeing a lot of plays where, for the very first time, you know, why should you have, be able to rent my eyeballs? They're not yours. <laughs> You're sucking value out of my head, literally. And I should be able to do that, and I should get paid for that. So the centers of gravity of a lot of things that we've taken for granted up until now in history are just shifting. And <laughs> it's disconcerting to a lot of people. But it's interesting because we did start off with this discussion with you really thinking, having this brainwave that it was going to be as big as and as important as the Internet is. And if we can see these things shifting now, and it took some time. The Internet was invented in 1969. Most people didn't start using it regularly until the mid-1990s. So there's a good 25 years there. And it didn't really start to change things for almost another 10 years. You know, it seems as though what we're doing first with Bitcoin and now with Ethereum and all of these other coins is we're starting to sort of work out what can we do with this? And the more that we push, the more that we see there's a lot here. Look, the internet ate telecommunications and media. And yeah, I did more than that. There's Amazon, there's a few other things, but by and large, that's kind of it. This stuff, cryptocurrency, the blockchain, all of this is going to eat world banking, law, and money. It's going to eat corporate structure, um, equity, and venture investing. So if you you know you add all that up, this is several orders of magnitude larger than the meal that the internet consumed. This is a, this is like ten times bigger, right? And and we we have this interesting situation where because of the complexity of these things, we're actually going to see a new generation of lawyers and probably a new generation of software engineers who have specifically gone through uni and trained up on how to write these things in a way so that they don't have bugs that cause half their value to get sucked away by someone who goes, <laughs> oh, I wasn't doing anything wrong. And so I've heard people describe this new wave of technology as the Full Employment Act for both software engineers and for lawyers. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, 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 you know, it gives with one hand and takes with the other, like, like, like a lot of things. All right. So let, let remember, the name of this podcast is The Next Billion Seconds. So let's go out to 2050. Are we still using any of our regular currencies? Are we still using dollars and euros and renminbi? Or is everything now digital currencies? It's all digital currency, no doubt in my mind. I think far before that date. Is that going to be, is, are the central banks going to come along? Are we going to have U.S. dollars that are cryptocurrencies or are they just going to be swamped? Well, this is the big question, isn't it? Um, I, I don't think I, – I think the United States dollar is akin to the taxi, and uh, this is the Uber. And I think, I think this is just going to eat it alive. Um, uh, it's going to fight back. And what I don't know is what happens when it fights back and what form does that take. I, I don't know. I, but I, I, no doubt about it, it's a, it's a digital token Bitcoin-like currency or currencies that is the world that we live in. I don't know how much governments can actually control this any more than they can control the internet, right? Uh, 
Well, the Chinese have done a very good job of controlling the internet. You're right about that. So I wonder if these things aren't... Tameable may not be the right word, but it may be possible to find ways to make accommodations with them. I mean, we all thought the internet was going to be this great, you know, everything was going to be free and all the knowledge is out, and now all the knowledge is out (laughs) and everyone is free, and it's a lot more complicated than anyone suspected at the time. It is, but I mean, I'd say overall, knowledge is a lot more free. Oh, absolutely. There's no question about that. And and look, it's not going to be a perfect wondrous unicorn filled world of course but it is going to be better uh, monetarily than the one we live in now i think that is now become inevitable mark jeffrey thank you very much for this very interesting chat on the next billion seconds my pleasure thanks for having me if you'd like to read more of mark's work you can grab his book bitcoin explained simply on amazon Did all of this talk about money get you to thinking? If so, we'd like to hear from you. Drop by our LinkedIn page, send us a message on Twitter, tell us what you want to know about the future. We'll do our best to bring it to you in a future episode. In the next episode of The Next Billion Seconds, we'll be talking to indie games pioneer Eric Zimmerman about how we'll be playing in the future. That's the next time on The Next Billion Seconds. The Next Billion Seconds is recorded for Podcast One. Recording and production assistance is provided by Alex Mitchell. Big thanks to Chris Donovan and Podcast One Studios LA for opening their studios up to Mark Jeffrey. Audio production by Nick Slater. Music by Kirk Godfrey. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or the Podcast One app. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening. <laughs>